0: In Leaving the Gay Place, Doherty chronicles the life of Billy Lee Brammer, once one of the most engaging novelists in America, tells a sweeping story of American pop culture and politics through the life and work of a writer who tragically exemplifies the highs and lows of the country at mid-century. Doherty's uh, Doherty's writing is perceptive and quietly surprising, often uh, slyly subversive. His work as a biographer is thorough and tempered without compromising the narrative. And hiding Man, his biography of Donald Barthelme, Doherty definitely illuminates one of America's most playful, challenging, and influential writers. Joyce Carol Oates wrote of Doherty's Joan Didion biography, it is rare to find a biographer so temperamentally, intellectually, and even stylistically matched with his subject. Tracy Doherty has written biographies of Joan Didion, Joseph Heller, and Donald Barthelme, as well as four novels, six short story collections, a book of personal essays, and a collection of essays on literature and writing. His stories and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Paris Review Online, McSweeney's, The Georgia Review, and many other journals. At Oregon State University, Doherty helped found the Master of Fine Arts Program in Creative Writing, uh, of which I am a graduate. and is now Distinguished Professor of English and Creative Writing Emeritus. We're incredibly fortunate to have him with us this evening. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome.
1: Thank you, Dylan. Uh, This is one of the nicest bookstores in the country, and uh, I'm really uh, grateful to be here and grateful to Dylan and his colleagues for, for hosting me. And uh, grateful to all of you for showing up on a Friday night. I see a lot of familiar faces. This feels a little bit like a private party with family (laughs) and friends, so maybe we can just relax and have fun tonight. That would be good. Um, Recently, I've been to a lot of bookstore presentations, and it it seems to me that a lot of writers are being asked by their publishers to give very slick book pitches the way they would at a a sales meeting with publishers, something like... um, You know, five reasons why my book is the most important thing since the invention of print and why you can't live without it and that sort of thing, and uh, I have to tell you I'm no good at the slick book pitch, so I won't be doing that. Um, I I much prefer storytelling. Uh, I've never gotten over the wonderful feeling of being a child and having someone read to me, so if it's okay with you, I'm going to read a little bit to you tonight. I've chosen four brief passages from Leaving the Gay Place, which I hope will show you why I felt that Billy Lee Brammer, who I assume most of you have never heard of, was worthy of a book and worthy of people's attention. Um, And I'll start with the preface to the book, which will give you, I think, the basic introductory material you need to know about Brammer before I go on. Uh, And I should also warn you before I get started that uh, since politics and politicians are part of what I'm writing about here, there's some pretty coarse language in some of these passages. I hate to break it to you, but um, behind the scenes, some of our politicians can be pretty salty-mouthed. So if you are queasy about such language, I apologize to you in advance. Uh, Just remember, these are not my words. They are the words of the great leaders of our nation. So um, so we'll let the story take over. And we'll begin by traveling back to Dallas, Texas, in November 1963, 55 years ago, which is very hard to believe now. For two days, Dallas police officers had failed to keep the hallways clear or to provide a proper context for the interrogation of Lee Harvey Oswald. Despite the desperate gravity of the situation, police security of the building was obviously extremely lax, recalled the FBI agent James B. Hostie, one of the interrogators. During a 10-hour stretch from the afternoon of Friday, November 22nd, until early the following morning, Captain Will Fritz hoped to question Oswald without Hostie or anyone else present in his small office on the third floor of the municipal building. One-on-one with the prisoner, he might develop a conversational rhythm that would put the man at ease. But the clamor of reporters outside the office door thwarted any attempt at fruitful dialogue. As the Warren Commission later concluded, the tumultuous atmosphere throughout the third floor made it difficult for the interrogators to gain Oswald's confidence and to encourage him to be truthful. As Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry has recognized in his testimony We were violating every principle of interrogation. When Hostie arrived at the municipal building less than two hours after Oswald had been transported to the headquarters of the Dallas Police Department, dozens of camera crews, television newsmen, and print reporters thronged the hall, jostling and shouting. Flash bulbs popped, microphones screeched. The Dallas District Attorney, Henry M. Wade, estimated that early in the evening of November 22nd, as many as 300 reporters jammed the building's third floor. The conditions were not unlike Grand Central Station at rush hour, maybe like Yankee Stadium during the World Series, Hostie said. He could not catch the elevator to the third floor because an ABC News crew had parked its heavy camera in it. He took the stairs instead. Recording cables ran crazily down the stairwell and out the building's windows, wrapping the structure in an enormous black web. Initially, no steps were taken to exclude unauthorized persons from the third floor corridor, said the Warren Commission report. Then, for a few frustrating hours, police officers attempted to check press IDs. Any semi-official card passed muster with them. They didn't have time to make telephone calls to authenticate credentials. Reporters had nearly free reign of the building. Newsmen wandered into the offices of other bureaus located on the third floor, sat on desks, and used police telephones. One reporter admits hiding a telephone behind a desk so he'd have exclusive access to it if something happened, according to the Warren Commission report. Even worse, as Stephen M. Gillen, a historian of the period, wrote, anyone could have entered the building and positioned themselves within feet of America's most notorious prisoner since John Wilkes Booth. At least twice between Friday night and late Saturday evening, photographers and TV technicians recalled seeing a stubby little guy cut through the pack of reporters talking up a strip joint. My name is Jack Ruby, he'd say, holding out a business card. I own the Carousel Club. This card will entitle you to be my guest. At no point did anyone attempt to stop him or ask him for credentials, wrote Gillen. If someone wanted to harm the prisoner, it would have been a simple matter to fake press identification and pose as a journalist, or even as Ruby did, walk into the place with a knowing swagger. The danger of an attack on Oswald was compounded by the Dallas Police Department's policy of cooperating openly with the press. Under no circumstances would Chief Curry consider restricting media access, especially given this case's high profile and suspicions already rampant in the halls that the cops would naturally want to rough up this kid who had apparently killed the nation's president. The only way to prove that no one was mistreating the prisoner was to let reporters see him often. Three times within the first seven hours of Oswald's capture, officers paraded him through the chattering mob. On one of these excursions just before 8 o'clock on Friday evening, he shouted he was a patsy. Security measures threatened to unravel altogether early Sunday morning. Chief Curry announced that Oswald would be transferred to the custody of the Dallas County Sheriff. What time? Reporters wanted to know. If you fellas are here by 10 AM, you'll be early enough, Curry answered. On Sunday morning, hundreds of Dallas citizens gathered on Commerce Street across the Boulevard from the municipal building, awaiting a glimpse of Oswald at the basement exit. Though officers had been instructed not to allow anyone but identified news media representatives into the basement, the police accepted any credentials that appeared authentic, said the Warren Commission report. Anthony Ripley, a reporter for the Detroit News, testified that he entered the basement and was not challenged as to his identity. James Standard of the Oklahoma Publishing Company told the commission he'd managed to penetrate the area by exhibiting an old insurance card. Billy Lee Brammer may or may not have had legitimate press credentials that day. It is certain that he carried a credit card issued to him by Time Magazine two years earlier. He no longer worked for Time, but he still charged expenses to the card. Time's accountants either hadn't noticed this or hadn't caught up with him yet. In any case, they hadn't canceled his credit line and it's possible that the magazine hadn't yet bothered to void his press pass. But then, in spite of this being a clear turning point in his life, with publishers lining up to call him after the Dallas murders, it is also possible that Billy Lee Brammer wasn't in the municipal building on Sunday, November 24, 1963. Rather than deflating his mystique, this uncertainty seems to have enhanced it through the years. He used to tell people, He was in the same building when Oswald was shot, his daughter Sydney said. The historian Stephen L. Davis declared Brammer was at Dallas City Jail where he witnessed Jack Ruby shooting Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh yeah, I remember him talking about Ruby, said Al Reinert, a friend and former colleague. Just knowing Billy Lee, he'd try to get there. Dallas was ground zero that day and he was still a functional guy then. But another friend, Hugh Lowe, said, it surprised the hell out of me to find out he was part of the working press then. I don't remember hearing anything about Billy Lee doing any serious journalism during that period. Dorothy Brown, Brammer's second ex-wife, does not believe he could have been in the basement. Yet his first ex, Nadine Eckhart, insisted he was a trickster who could well have slipped unnoticed into the chaos that day. It would be just like him. The story's drama, as well as its uncertain provenance, is familiar to anyone who has heard, even in passing, of Billy Lee Brammer. If you know of him at all, you know the Billy Lee myth. If you don't know of him, it is not adding to his myth to say you may have an incomplete understanding of the dynamics of American culture in the late 20th century. Billy Lee Brammer embodied those dynamics and was a catalyst for their dissemination. The Billy Lee myth begins with a fact. He was once one of the most engaging young novelists in the country, greeted by some critics as the second coming of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Brammer's is a new and major talent, big in scope, big in its promise of even better things to come, wrote A.C. Spectorsky, a former staffer at the New Yorker. His work has impressive sweep, it makes many of today's novels seem small, contrived, even mean. Brammer earned the $2,400 Houghton Mifflin Fellowship a year after Philip Roth won it for Goodbye Columbus, and in 1961, he published a novel, The Gay Place, that David Halberstam, Willie Morris, and Gore Dahl, among others, considered a far more impressive achievement than Roth's debut. The Gay Place was the best novel about American politics in our time, wrote Morris and Halberston called it a classic, a stunning, original, intensely human novel inspired by Lyndon Johnson. It will be read a hundred years from now. Johnson, for whom Brammer had worked when Johnson led the U.S. Senate, was the one reader the book should not have had, according to the myth, for he was said to be so upset by the comic portrait Brammer had framed of him that he froze Brammer out of the White House and killed the biography Brammer had planned to write about him, destroying his confidence, snuffing his brilliant talent. That's phase one of the Billy Lee myth. Phase two claims, again with some roots in fact, that psychedelia wouldn't have exploded in the American 1960s without Brammer's influence. This part of the story says the San Francisco hippie scene evolved out of a group of Texan transplanted from Austin, among them Brammer's pals Chet Helms and Janice Joplin. Since Brammer, fresh from consorting with Ken Kesey, was single-handedly responsible for turning Austin, Texas onto to LSD, the summer of love wouldn't have occurred without him. In sifting facts from the myth, it's instructive to return to the basement of the Dallas Municipal Building at just after 11.21 a.m. on Sunday, November 24th, 1963. Whether or not Billy Lee Brammer actually stood on the spot as NBC News reporter Tom Pettit shouted at the cameras, he's been shot, in a broadcast carried live across the nation. Lee Oswald has been shot. Pandemonium has broken out. And American history took a murky turn from which it's never completely recovered. Brammer stood at the center of these events. He had known John F. Kennedy. They shared a mistress. He knew the man who'd just been sworn in as the new president. For years he'd endured endured Lyndon Johnson's rages and he'd enjoyed the man's difficult friendship. He knew Jack Ruby. In the days leading up to the Kennedy and Oswald assassinations, Brammer had stayed in the Dallas apartment of a friend who was dating a mobbed up stripper from Ruby's club. On Friday afternoon when Oswald fled the Texas School Book Depository after allegedly shooting Kennedy, he briefly returned to the house where he boarded, less than three miles from Brammer's parents' house in Oak Cliff, an area of Dallas that Brammer knew had always been a way station for the disaffected and the lonely. He'd known dozens of Lee Oswalds growing up in that damn jicky place. Jicky is what they'd called it, meaning crazy, sad, and he could have told the interrogators a thing or two when Oswald wasn't talking. Billy Lee was always ahead of the game. He was queuing the rest of us, what to expect, said Gary Cartwright, Brammer's friend and colleague at Texas Monthly Magazine. In a vastly unsettled period, Brammer's gaze encompassed the whole horizon. He observed more knowingly than anyone before him, Lyndon Johnson, who was as personally responsible for American history since 1950 as any other man of his time, in the opinion of Ronnie Duggar, author of the LBJ biography Brammer might have written. And then, when the culture came a Colin, he was ready, said Brammer's younger daughter, Shelby. Brammer would become as important to certain segments of the 60s counterculture as Ginsburg was to the beats, said Kay Northcutt, a former editor of the Texas Observer. They were both mentors, teaching the impatient how to cope with our imperfect world. In 1960, as Houghton Mifflin was preparing Brammer's book for publication, one of his editors, Dorothy DeSantayana, wrote to him to say that B.L. Brammer would appear on the cover. Eventually, the publisher settled on William Brammer. No one, I repeat, no one up here in Boston thinks Billy Lee is possible, De Santiana said. With all respect to your parents who gave it to you with such evident love, it is a very loving name. It has not the strength and authority for a novel which commands respect at the top of its voice. The names Kennedy, Oswald, and Ruby naturally occur to many of us when we think now of what was possible and what was lost in the last third of the American 20th century. When we watch an old film clip of John Kennedy's acceptance speech at the 1960 Democratic National Convention at which Brammer was present drumming up delegates for Johnson, when we hear Kennedy's words, we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. We think of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, of LBJ, how many kids did you kill today, of Robert Kennedy, Ho Chi Minh, Richard Nixon, of Harper Lee and Gloria Steinem, Abby Hoffman, John Lennon, Bob Dylan, many others. The new frontiers that opened up in the United States in the 1960s were personal as much as political, a familiar truism these days. Countless moments arose or were improvised for freedom from traditional restrictions and for destructive self-indulgences. From our vantage point, the real story of these new frontiers may be told most vividly now by studying the movements and companions of a hard to locate man with the improbable name, Billy Lee. So in the late 1950s, uh, Billy Lee Brammer was working as a journalist in Texas, mostly for liberal publications. And even in the 1950s in Texas, it was hard to find a political liberal. Most of them were hunkered down together in Austin, uh, meeting fairly regularly at a beer garden called Schultz's, and that was where the activists of the liberal parties were, were gathered, and Billy Lee was part of that crowd. In the meantime, Lyndon Johnson had become the majority leader of the US Senate, and uh, he had gotten to the Senate under allegedly shady conditions, uh, it was strongly believed then and has pretty much been confirmed in the decades since that he got to the Senate by stuffing ballot boxes, mostly in South Texas uh, in a town called Alice where a, uh, a uh, corrupt political boss worked for him. Uh, but in any case, uh, Johnson got to the Senate and pretty much took it over. And at the time, he was courting the liberals all over the country because they didn't trust him and he knew he needed them. Uh, and somehow he had become aware of of Brammer's work, and uh, so he thought that by inviting Brammer to be a member of his staff, he might uh, get the liberals to warm up to him. Brammer was up for an adventure, uh, and uh, so he quit his job, and he and his wife, Nadine, uh, moved to Washington, D.C., and he went to work for Lyndon Johnson and tried to write his first novel. And uh, I'll give you a very quick glimpse of uh, Brammer in Washington, D.C. in the late 50s, working for LBJ. It was a lamentable room in the old Senate office building, so raspy and clattery that you could barely hear yourself think. Rows and rows of robo-typers, air pumps hissing, rolls of perforated paper spasming forward into what appeared to be an old-fashioned sewing rig attached to an IBM typewriter. The keys pulsed mechanically, guided by hooks and levers responding to the coated air holes in the master roll of paper, an early duplicating machine. It was a Rube Goldberg-looking thing, Nadine said, designed to produce many copies of a single letter so constituents at home would believe they'd received personal correspondence from their congressman. The minimum daily quota was 100 letters per staff person, uh, per day. Under his breath, Brammer had taken to calling calling Johnson the big pumpkin because of the man's large head. He tickled his colleagues, mocking the typical LBJ letter, my dear friend, I remain your very dear friend, your friend, Lyndon. (laughs) Most of the letters were rote responses to Texans who had written to complain about local issues requiring federal intervention or asking for official favors. These were called case letters. Johnson also liked to send warm letters, kind notes to people he'd become aware of in his former congressional district who were having health problems or who were, for some reason, distressed. Initially, Brammer's duties included writing a weekly newsletter for dissemination to the Daily Papers in Texas. Many of the newsletters emphasized Johnson's courtship of Northeastern labor unions to convince the liberals back home that he was pursuing a progressive agenda. Brammer wrote statements for the congressional record. He wrote short speeches for the senator. Eventually, at Johnson's request, he began to forge daily chatty notes to the senator's mother so that she would think her son had not forgotten her. Brammer shared a spacious office, room 201, in the Senate office building with another staffer, Booth Mooney. Upon assuming the majority leadership, Johnson had commandeered without asking anyone all the office space he wanted. His own room, G14, was decorated with two chandeliers that had hung in Theodore Roosevelt's White House. And it came with a fireplace that Johnson lighted every afternoon. Brammer's space had a crystal chandelier, marble fireplace, leather sofa and an outsized desk that straddled me like some enormous draft animal, he said. It had a matchless view of such Capitol Hill wonders as Senator Byrd walking his aged spaniel, Mr. Justice Frankfurter walking himself, and a remarkable number of public servants walking hellbent for the drinking wenching relief of the Carroll Arms Hotel. Room 201 was located directly beneath Richard Nixon's office. Brammer entertained colleagues by inviting them to come hear the groan of the vice presidential plumbing. He got along splendidly with Mooney. Mooney once told him he was convinced that Johnson's election to the Senate in 1948 had been illegal. He said he and his wife had vacationed in Mexico a year after the controversy with the ballot boxes in Alice, Texas. He claimed to have met the man who'd burned the fake ballots. This fellow had been spirited away across the border for safekeeping until the story died down. However, LBJ got to the Senate, he was now strictly in control, and he brooked no sloppiness or insubordination from his staff. I only think about politics 18 hours a day, Nadine later recalled him saying, and he expected his workers to do the same. He consumed his staff as fuel, said Harry McPherson, another staff member. As a human being, he was a miserable person, a bully, A sadist, a lout, an egotist, George Reedy said. His lapses from civilized conduct were deliberate and usually intended to subordinate someone else to his will. Were there nothing else to look at save LBJ's personal relationships with other people, it would be merciful to forget him altogether. But there is much more to look at. He may have been a son of a bitch, but he was a colossal son of a bitch. Clean up your fucking desk, he might say to one of his assistants while passing through an office. I hope your mind isn't as empty as that desk. He would rip a sheet of paper from someone's typewriter, read what the person had written, and bellow, God, you're stupid. You couldn't pour piss out of a boot if the instructions were printed on the heel. If a secretary watered down his evening scotches or accidentally poured him a glass of sherry, instead he'd yell about being poisoned. On one occasion, dissatisfied with the quality of the drink he'd been handed, he hurled the glass and shattered it against the wall. He insisted that his female employees stay within certain weight limits, and if a woman got too chubby, in his view, he would mock her mercilessly. He could be a wicked mimic, imitating the odd gates in people's walks. To his male employees, he would sometimes brag about the size of his penis, nicknamed Jumbo, And on occasion, he would force them to sit in the bathroom with him while he emptied his bowels and dictated orders, stressing his overpowering physical presence and humiliating the men. He referred to his male staffers as his hard-peckered boys. Johnson had no concept of order, none whatsoever, Reedy said. He knew how to handle people as individuals, and if some of those people could bring organization along with them, well and good but he would constantly put subordinates in an impossible position in front of their subordinates. He would issue contradictory orders and then never even realized they were contradictory. He was always embarrassing people, making them look very small in their own eyes at any rate, in front of other people. On the other hand, one staffer told Robert Caro, you felt the world was moving and Lyndon was gonna be one of the movers. And if you worked for him, you'd be one of the movers. William Morris, who would later become the editor of Harper's Magazine and who was a friend of Brammer's. Willie Morris, traveling to London, stopped in Washington to visit Brammer and found him enthralled by Johnson, by his complexity and his promise, though in those early days Brammer rarely encountered his boss. He's just about 50 feet away in another office, but I never see the lord of the manor, he wrote Ronnie Duggar, another friend. Instead, Brammer would sit slumped late at night in the robotyper room's sterile glare. Empty Coke bottles, piles of mistyped pages, ashes, and pallor. Harry McPherson described it. He recalled the end of one long day. Bill Brammer's eyes, as he waited for a machine to finish so that he might begin the cycle once more, were large and red. Do you love it, Brammer? I shouted. I love it. I love it, he replied. After a while, we switched off the current and went out for a beer. Washington is hideous. Brammer wrote Duggar in early January 1956 before Nadine and his daughters arrived in the city. He was surviving on butterfingers, warm jello, and amphetamines. The days were cold and misty, gray but for smudges of neon here and there, a bad impressionist painting. A smell of ashes, bus exhaust lingered over everyone. The tires of hustling taxis hissed on wet pavement. DC was swiftly efficient, cruelly unforgiving. We had been young and liberal in Texas, where to be liberal was to be righteously happy under siege, McPherson said. We'd entered the North now, where one needed to be astute as well as compassionate. Power was a flat, pervasive odor, as unmistakable as cordite, he said. Bill was working hard 10 to 12 hours a day, but had few friends in Washington and not much free time to have a social life, said Glenn Wilson, a fellow staffer whose wife Marie would sometimes cook for Brammer in their suburban Alexandria home. She worried about how thin he was and how little sleep he got. He developed this peculiar pattern, Wilson said. When the regular workday was done at 7 or 8 PM, he'd grab a quick sandwich and then go to his small apartment, take a two or three hour nap. He would then arise about midnight and fortified with coffee and Dr. Pepper and diet pills. He'd write until dawn. He'd have another quick nap, get up, shower, and go to work. How he was able to keep up this grueling regime, even though he was still in his 20s, I don't know. Brammer told Duggar, I'm almost finished with the first draft of my book. I've written about 30,000 words more. He admitted to Duggar that the book lacked focus. He worried as well that he'd ingested so much Scott Fitzgerald. My prose took a turn toward a seedy parody of his style. To counter this tendency, he immersed himself in Saul Bellow, but the Jewish influence makes my Southwest characters talk like Yiddish immigrants. (laughs) Duggar read between the lines of Brammer's letters. He knew his friend was serious about writing, but his enthusiasm for the book seemed forced, a pallid attempt to cheer himself up. Duggar wrote back, I'm desperately fearful. You'll become some wispy, haunting feather on the night wind. In the early morning hours, rereading what he'd written before the clatter of the robo-typers began again in earnest, he worried that his characters based on the Schultz crowd back in Austin lacked purpose and interest. Much as he hated Washington, he agreed with McPherson. It was one thing to sit about the tables of the Schultz garden in Austin, drinking ice pearl and schooners and mock politicians, but it was another thing to confront this city, Washington, with its mysteries of authority. The complexities of power, the ambiguities of political conflicts could turn the fiercest convictions into doubt. Brammer wondered what sort of unstable element he could introduce among his characters to shake them up a little. Well, the unstable uh, element he in- introduced into his novel was a character based on Lyndon Johnson. Uh, in The Gay Place, uh, the title of which comes from a phrase in a Scott Fitzgerald poem, Brammer included a, a character, a politician, named Arthur goddamn Fenstermacher. <laughs> uh, Fenstermacher is a German word. Literally, it means uh, window maker. But among the German immigrants to the Texas Hill country around Austin, uh, Fenstermacher was a slang word. And it meant something like magician or illusionist, which is how Brammer saw LBJ. So th- The Gay Place was published in 61. and um, Johnson immediately got pissed off about it and cooled to Brammer very quickly. Not that Johnson really read the book. I mean, like our current president, Johnson was not a reader, so uh, he didn't really you know, know firsthand what was in it, but people told him. Uh, and so he cooled to Brammer. Uh, in the meantime, uh, based on the critical success of the book, Brammer quit his job with LBJ and went to work for Time magazine as a reporter, um, and he campaigned for, for Kennedy and Johnson and when Kennedy was elected with Johnson as his vice president, Brammer went, went back to, uh, to Washington to cover the Kennedy White House for time. And during this period Brammer shared a mistress with JFK, a salacious little episode that I won't read to you tonight. Um, but uh, he, he was there for a while and, and observed the White House up close. So I'm gonna conclude with a couple of brief sections that will give you a, a little taste of Brammer working as a Time reporter in Washington and then right after that returning to Texas. They all knew Ellen Romich. Everyone who'd worked with LBJ's aide, Bobby Baker, through Johnson's office. Romech was a Liz Taylor look-alike from what was now East Germany, with an astonishing capacity for partying and entertaining men. Baker would often bring his girls, including Romech, to the Quorum Club, a hideaway on Capitol Hill where lobbyists and legislators unwound together after hours and where Baker frequently made legislative deals on behalf of LBJ and others, deals that often included private introductions to his girls. I must have had 50 friends who went with Romech, is how Baker once put it, and not one of them ever complained. She was a real joy to be with, as President Kennedy soon discovered. Brother Bobby understood that her East German ties risked exposing the president to charges of consorting with a communist spy, should word of his dalliance ever leak to Republicans. Bobby worked to get her out of Washington and to purchase her silence. Billy Lee knew her. He'd heard rumors about her nights with JFK. He said nothing to his friends. And as a journalist covering the White House now for Time Magazine, he respected the journalistic ethos of the day. He did not expose John F. Kennedy's secrets. Working for Johnson, Brammer had learned how things worked in Washington. At first, his pieces on the Kennedy White House remained solidly focused on public matters. Quote, beneath the sun-tanned surface when US citizens thought of their country, there was uneasiness and discontent. But Kennedy was too charismatic to be profiled for long in the traditional manner. The handsome young president cried for personal asides, even in a hard news context. Brammer's observational prowess, as well as his private knowledge, came in handy here. Time began to report such details as, the president moved easily showing no signs of his recent back injury, and he half smiled his recognition to White House regulars. Yet his face appeared puffy and lined by new wrinkles, and his hands seemed to tremble slightly as he shuffled the papers before him. Even in the midst of briefings, the president sometimes ceases to listen as he stares into space, apparently searching for the answer to some nagging problem. Hints of complexity, vulnerability, a life apart from the press room podium. Incrementally, in the pages of a mainstream news magazine, the president was taking on the shadings of a character in a novel. At one point, the Texas Observer gave Brammer space for a satire on the administration. It takes the form of a one-act play, and it's the closest Brammer came to publicly revealing the White House's daily routine. As the play begins, the first lady says, he's been in the pool since the crisis started. A newsman wants to know what crisis is she talking about? You got me there, answers the president. Kennedy did, in fact, spend many hours a week in the White House swimming pool, accompanied by a woman or several women, sometimes joined by his brothers Bobby and Teddy. The water was heated to 90 degrees to soothe his back. Jackie was not allowed near the facility when her husband made use of it. When the president takes lunch in the pool with fiddle and faddle, nobody goes in there," said one JFK staffer. Setting the scene of his play, Brammer writes, "'Visible in the pool is a young man, surpassingly beautiful, also unimpeachably naked.'" The unusual second adjective here, unimpeachably, suggests perhaps Brammer's bitter attitude toward Kennedy's unfair privilege. JFK's recklessness was so worrisome to so many members of the Secret Service and to members of the press corps, a sense of dread thickened the West Wing air. Additionally, Kennedy's amphetamine use had started to make him thinner. In Brammer's play, the president says, sometimes I see me dead in the rain. The first lady responds, oh darling, don't talk like that. The vice president, based on Johnson, standing to one side, contemplating walking on the water, pipes up, what's so awful about talking like that? Go on, talk like that some more. In just a few words, Brammer had captured the true dynamic of Camelot. Johnson, well aware of Kennedy's sexual profligacy, sulked and seized. You know what he does at night? Johnson told a staffer one day. He gets in a convertible and he drives to Georgetown to see one of his girlfriends. He said Kennedy was driving the Secret Service crazy. They're right behind him. On another occasion, Johnson told Brammer, J. Edgar Hoover has Jack Kennedy by the balls. CBS president Frank Stanton recalled LBJ exclaiming he was waiting for someone to blow the whistle on Kennedy. But the press was completely in Kennedy's hands, and Johnson knew that. It's tempting to wonder if the history of American journalism might have altered slightly if the code of official silence might have shattered earlier than it did in this country, if Johnson and Brammer were still working closely as a team. But Johnson had been conspicuously cool to his former aide since the appearance of the gay place. You're dealing with a very insecure, sensitive man with a huge ego. I want you to literally kiss his fanny from one end of Washington to the other, Kennedy told his staff regarding LBJ. I can't afford to have my vice president who knows every reporter in Washington going around saying we're all screwed up, so we're gonna keep him happy. Kennedy also decided to get his second in command out of the way as often as possible so Bobby wouldn't be tempted to joke about the man's gilded impotency. In turn, Johnson cursed that little shit ass, the president's brother. Kennedy arranged numerous foreign jaunts for LBJ, ceremonial visits centered on flying the flag Johnson didn't want to make these trips, particularly to Vietnam, where Kennedy had just approved a nearly 300% increase in the number of American military advisors assisting the South Vietnamese Army and an operation code named Ranch Hand, a plan to spray herbicide defoliants in the countryside to deny Viet Cong guerrillas food and cover. Johnson told Kennedy he didn't want to fly over there and get his head blown off. Kennedy laughed and said, it's all part of serving your country. Johnson took his spleen out on his staff. En route to Asia in May 1961, he ordered Horace Busby off the plane for some oversight the hapless aide had committed. But we're over the ocean, Busby said. I don't give a damn, Johnson exploded. Ladybird prevented the poor man from being ejected midair. Overseas, Johnson broke every cultural taboo, manhandling women and children in public, including a few fingerless lepers, telling confused crowds they could all be rich as Texans if they'd adopt the American way of life. Back in the States, he flew to Texas for a meeting with Dwight Eisenhower at the ranch. Brammer was among the reporters assigned to cover the event. Both men's destinies had altered radically, rising and falling in a very short time. Their personal worlds, as well as the world at large, were about to make even more unpredictable twists. On the flight back to Washington from the LBJ ranch, Johnson, melancholy, miserable in his secondary role as vice president, mused to gathered reporters that he missed the massive staff he'd commanded when he served as majority leader in the Senate. Nobody respected him now. Nobody ever stuck with him. Billy abandoned me, he said suddenly, pointing at Brammer. Brammer had resigned from Johnson's staff shortly after writing his novel. I picked up your book the other day, but I couldn't read it, Johnson said. You had too many dirty words in it. Brammer didn't answer. When did you write that book? When I was in Washington? When you were working for me at nights? You should have been answering my mail. This particular press conference had ended, the plane landed, the two men never spoke again. And then very quickly I'll conclude uh, with uh, a scene shortly after this. Brammer has grown weary and cynical uh, about politics and decides to leave Washington and return to Texas and uh, that's where his life takes uh, another big turn and he really quite literally stops wearing Brooks Brothers suits at that point. He never wore another suit in his life, I think, after this point. Uh, went back to Austin, uh, joined what later came to be called the counterculture, befriended Janis Joplin and others, and. Uh, you know, his life takes another, another detour, uh, which very much does define this period. Brammer remembered fearing, now they'll really take it out of my hide, expecting me to repeat it when he read the first good reviews of The Gay Place. He was having trouble gaining traction beyond a certain point with a second novel. Most often in late 1962, early 1963, cynical about Washington politics, happy to return to Texas, Brammer told friends everything he wrote seemed too innocent to him now. The novel, a naive aesthetic form. He feared he couldn't create more literature because I know too much. Knowing too much was Janice Joplin's problem too. In the oil-refining Gulf Coast town of Port Arthur where she grew up, bored, breathing the hellish air, Baptist churches bricked up street corners. But Joplin knew where all the brothels were and the gambling joints. When we were in high school, the city was on the one hand very straight-laced, but on the other hand, the town was absolutely wide open. I mean, the hypocrisy just glared, said Terry Owens, one of Joplin's friends. A key to Janice's personality was that she could not abide hypocrisy, David Moriarty, another Joplin friend, said. Worst of all were the mixed racial attitudes. Love thy brothers and sisters, but don't let the black ones near your churches or schools. In this atmosphere, Joplin found release listening to race records on the same border-blasting radio stations Brammer had tuned to as a kid. 75,000 watts of Odetta, Willie Mae Thornton, and Leadbelly. How come she could listen to this stirring rock and roll at night, but not sit next to a black classmate in school the following day, she wanted to know. Joplin's peers trailed her down the narrow high school halls, shouting at her and mocking her mercilessly. In 1962, she made her way to Austin and to Threadgills. Brammer's friend, Jay Milner, said, we'd all go to Mr. Kenneth Threadgills on weeknights. Mr. Threadgill was the son of a Nazarene minister. He loved nothing more than to bring people together. He could always be persuaded to sing along with his Jimmy Rogers jukebox records, Milner said. He'd yodel, do a bit of Hank Williams, dance a little jig, then return to his bartending duties beneath the giant ceiling fan that merely stirred hot air. Four gas pumps sat out front of the bar from the building's former filling station days. A TV antenna connected to nothing inside, twisted atop the roof. Here, Threadgill hosted truck drivers and ranchers who'd come to town at night, treating them to country tunes and hootenannies. Threadgill was a serious follower of music. He became curious about the growing folk phenomenon among the non-traditional students in town, the crowd that was getting more and more weird. Threadgill observed that despite obvious cultural and generational differences, the rural-urban divide, the students, ranchers, and truckers all shared a sense of exile from the mainstream. And they all locked onto music as a a significant identifier. The songs each group listened to shared basic chordal rhythmic roots. Brammer had heard these similarities long ago on the radio. So had Joplin when hillbilly bands played their versions of deep ellum blues. Slowly, Threadgill's little bar became a haven for folk purists, said the writer Jan Reed. And one night, a young regular named Julie Paul brought Janice Joplin to meet Mr. Threadgill. Paul had passed Joplin hitching on the roadside and told her about the bar's impromptu music nights. By the time Joplin had reached Austin, she was already neurotic with rejection, Reed said, a fallen Church of Christ girl, a homely overweight victim of the cosmetic 50s, she cursed like a sailor, drank anything she could get her hands on, wore no makeup, wore no bra. She apparently just wanted one person, damn it, to notice her. That person was Kenneth Threadgill. She teamed up one night with two new friends of hers, a duo called the Waller Creek Boys, Lanny Wiggins, a banjo player, and a harp man, Powell St. John. He was the first of many gigs they would play at the bar. Whenever the older crowd got restless, heckling Joplin during her screechy rendition of silver threads and golden needles, Mr. Threadgill shushed them. He let it be known he considered Joplin to be just like a daughter. She voiced the agonies of hell with the passion of a pilgrim who'd glimpsed heaven's gates, he said. He upgraded the bar's electrical capacities and bought a brand new microphone for her. She hung out with the hub of Austin's misfits, including Billy Lee Brammer at a place affectionately called the ghetto by its residents, a two-story wreck of barracks-style apartments on Nuasis Street near campus, each renting for $35 a month.
0: In the ramshackle
1: structure, there were only four actual apartments, maybe five if you squeeze together hard enough, but dozens of folks crashed there at any given time and it was difficult to know who really lived on the premises, a fact not lost on Alan Hamilton Chief of Police at the University of Texas, and Lieutenant Bert Gerding of the Austin Police Department, who surveilled the place intensely, suspecting subversive political activity, drug use, and illicit sexual practices. Aside from a few disorganized civil rights marches in front of segregated movie theaters, the ghetto group was largely apolitical. Drug use? Certainly. Though at that time, the head trip of choice was peyote, available legally and cheaply, 10 cents a plant, at a nearby store called Hudson's Cactus Gardens. The ghettoites tended to cut the drug's bitter taste by mixing it with store-bought molasses, whose sugar content actually counteracted the mescaline. Far more dangerous was the home beer brewing, done in an enclosed stairway. Sometimes bottles would overheat and blow up, sending glass shrapnel into the ceilings. Sex, the cop's major obsession, according to the number of reports filed on it, did occur frequently in spite of the rotting kimchi and cat box odor permeating the corridors, as well as most of the bedrooms and the unsavory presence of stained mattresses no one bothered to change. In America, it was beginning to be rumored that women could have orgasms, said Ramsey Wiggins, a sometimes ghetto president. The evenings were joyous. Sitting outside in mild weather beneath stately pecan trees, one dead branch spangled with condoms and beer caps, listening to Janice sing, the Waller Creek Boys blow and strum. Brammer's attentiveness impressed Joplin, as it did so many other women. Together, they shared their childhood pleasures of listening to late-night radio. They enthused over Bobby Dylan's first album. Brammer introduced her to it. She told him how, in high school, She used to drive with a group of guy friends across the Louisiana border and flirt with rednecks in seedy swamp bars, sometimes landing her buddies in brutal fistfights, She could cause as much trouble as Nadine, Brammer saw, except she didn't have Nadine's self-assurance. She laughed when he told her how one day he'd left a stash of pills in his bathing trunks and forgotten about them. He went for a swim in Lake Travis, the pills gummed together in a giant ball. Not knowing what to do, he popped the whole thing in his mouth. It was one of his finest highs, he said. At the ghetto, Bremer met Gilbert Shelton, then lead cartoonist at the Texas Ranger, a campus humor rag frequently shut down by authorities for its irreverence and obscenities. Shelton drew Wonder Warthog, a spoof of Superman. Later, he'd spearhead the 1960s underground comics explosion. The philosophy of his most famous creation, the Furry Freak Brothers, could well have evolved at the ghetto. Dope will get you through times of no money. Better than money will get you through times of no dope. Beneath the gently swaying pecan trees, a sweeter, more sacred scene than the White House swimming pool, Brammer thought, Brammer came to know Wally Stouffer, after whom Austin's first head shop would be named, Chet Helms, Grover Lewis, and a host of variously skilled musicians who would shortly, with a little help from Billy Lee, lead Austin into punk-edged psychedelia. And I'll leave the story there for tonight. Thanks for your patience. Um, If you're interested, I'm happy to to take some questions or or chat with you about how some of that ancient history still resonates with us a little bit today. Um, Very quickly, though, I I will share with you one thing, uh, because I am very often asked, you know, how, how, how do you begin writing a long biography like this? Uh, this is the fourth one of these I've done, and it's still kind of trial and error in some ways. But um, it is, I think, important for me when I begin a project like this to, to line up a chronology. So what I basically do is, uh, and this shows you again how old-fashioned I am, I, there are computer programs that will you know, mine data for you. But I have to have the brain and hand uh, coordination. It's like, like physical labor. It has to be something for me to do. So I get a notebook, and uh, I will line up you know, the years of, of the subject's life, from the year the person was born to the year the person died, just at the top of the page, line up all the years. And then sort of categorize several different things under each year. So what was going on in this person's personal life that year? What was happening in the world of literature and art and culture that year? What was happening socially and culturally and around the world that year? Did did a war begin, did a war end? Because all of these things are gonna affect the way that person grows up and the way that person thinks and what happens to that person's life. So I have all those things lined up in columns under the years. And uh, and then I have underneath that all the source material I have that will speak to those things, uh, whether it's personal interviews or papers or Um, you know, magazine pieces, whatever. So I can have at one glance, that's the idea anyway, uh, you know, what's happening year by year in the person's life. And that essentially becomes the outline of the book. Uh, So you can see, I just want to show you this real quickly, um, because in the beginning with with Billy Lee, it began clearly enough, and I hope you can see this. So I have the years up here at the top of the page. looks like a magic nice trick, but it's just basically a hell of a lot of work, so, so that's it. That's how that's done. So, uh, I saw a hand. Anybody have a... Yeah. Uh, yeah, did everybody hear the question? How did I get interested in Billy Lee? Um, quickly, I, I grew up in Texas, and um, I was lucky enough to know early on that I wanted to be a writer. I just loved to read, so it was it was clear to me very early that this was the path I was on and if you are a a budding young writer in Texas you hear about Billy Lee Brammer. He's this mythic figure in Texas. You know, outside Texas nobody knows about him, but he wrote the this novel that everybody loved and then he didn't fulfill his promise, you know. And so everybody was always talking about what might have been if Billy Lee had fulfilled his promise. He could have been our great James Joyce or our, you know, he could have been our next great wonderful writer, but it never happened. So what what would have happened? So as a teenager, I read *The Gay Place*. Um, my grandfather was a politician in Oklahoma, so I was interested in politics, and here was this great political novel. So it was, you know, he was an important figure to me. Um, but then a few years ago, I managed to meet his daughter, Sydney, who's had a fascinating life herself. Uh, and we we met a few years ago, and I told her that I knew her dad's book and loved it, and we started chatting and. Uh, She said, well, you're a biographer. You should write his life story. And I said, no, no, no. Nobody knows who he was. Nobody would read such a book. You know, there's no way anybody would even publish such a book. So I I just, I didn't take the idea seriously. But Sidney went to work on me and worked on me for years. Uh, She would send me books uh, that her dad had owned with his signature in them. You know, she would send me these little gifts like, you know, here's a little present and... uh, then we would meet occasionally, and uh, she would tell me stories and this is what really got me she started telling me these stories and I thought, this is too good to pass up uh, the stories are great it's great material um, and I've never really been one to to worry too much about uh what's practical uh you know if you if you think too much about trying to create a career as a writer, you're, you're really in trouble because there's no way to have a career as a writer. It's it's too it's too amorphous, you know. It, it depends too much on passion and inspiration and you have to let those things be what they are and no one can pre- predict what people are gonna read. It's just, it's impossible to plan it out. So I've never worried too much about it. I did know it would be tr- hard to publish such a book and that such a book would have trouble finding readers but, you know, there's no, no reason to let that stop me so I didn't, <laughs> so. So here here I am. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Now they're talking about Trump trauma and these kids growing up around Trump. It like, seems like sort of a comic universe. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like what we dealt with, you know. I mean, uh, I'm just wondering, you know, I just thought it occurred to me as you're reading really mm-hmm. because that was a hell of a moment for America.
1: Right. Versus, you know, Bobby, too. You know, yeah. And, yeah. Um, the man who was Bobby as a kid just recently. Right. Well, I think this is another thing that's fascinating to me. We're living, obviously, as everyone is saying, in a very divided time politically and culturally. And the 1960s was another very divided time politically and culturally. But one of the things that digging into this particular story taught me was that a lot of those divisions that we saw in the 60s, and we can see this now in retrospect, really weren't divisions. Um, So a figure like Brammer went from you know the halls of power in Washington DC to the to the counterculture and the people he encountered along the way were pretty much the same people so we tend to think that on the one side there was the establishment and on the other side there was the counterculture and i what i want to argue and what i try to argue in this book is that it's all the same people you know basically it's just you know american citizens and they were all experimenting with new cultural changes and it, it all filtered through at every level of the society so those divisions weren't quite as stark as we thought they were, which makes me wonder. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not true now, but it makes me wonder how stark are the divisions now. The media and other people are you know, giving us a picture that we're horribly divided, we're on the verge of a civil war. Well, really, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, but I, I really think those stark divisions may not be as stark as we think they are. Yes, well, uh, that's that's a good question. What do we do? Well, we we vote on Tuesday, right? Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the other thing I have to say, I'll just add. Um, you know, I, I do have to laugh when I when I hear news pundits say we've never seen anybody like Donald Trump. Um, and I want to say, number one, I grew up in West Texas, where where macho behavior and bullying was the norm. You know, so. Uh, I've known Donald Trump's all my life. They're, they're common as dirt where I come from, as we used to say. So uh, we've seen him all over the place all the time. And secondly, LBJ was Donald Trump. I mean, there, there are obviously crucial differences. LBJ knew how to govern and cared about governing and made a distinction between private behavior and public tone. But LBJ was very much as a personality, Donald Trump, and vice versa. So we, we have seen it before. Richard Nixon came very close, you know, to <laughs> to pulling off a coup in this country, I'd say. Uh, so we've, we've been here before. Yeah, that was the level of tragedy, and we're with the
0: level of comedy now. So told. Yeah.
1: Is yeah, sort of in the yeah. But yeah. No, and I don't mean to minimize the current moment. It's it's a scary moment, I think, for all of us, for, no matter where we are on the p- political spectrum, but, and it's very tense. It's a very tense time, certainly. Uh, but I do think, you know, I am one of these believers that, that knowing history does help us, because it does tell you that, yeah, there are crucial differences between now and then, but there are also huge similarities. We have been through things like this before. We have managed to come through. Whether we always will is is an open question, but, you know it's not it's not like we're in totally uncharted territory and i do think history helps us understand that all right it's yeah yeah I I don't really always know when when I come across a particular subject how I'm gonna approach it. Um, So I I don't know if I can really answer the question, but I can say that um, before I started writing biographies, and I got into writing biographies really quite by accident. I never intended to do this. Uh, I was writing fiction, um, and um, only got into writing biographies just because I wanted to tell the story of this old teacher of mine that that I loved, <laughs> so that got me off on this path. Um, but in my earlier fiction, I always wanted to get a, a huge social sweep into my stories, the way Dickens did. I always loved Dickens novels where, you know, in every, those novels you go from the top of society to the very richest and privileged people to the very bottom, and I always wanted that, that huge scope, and I couldn't do it, I just didn't know how to do it. So all my fiction felt really cramped and narrow to me. The biographies have opened up a whole new thing for me because when, when a life story is kind of already there, you know, the, the details of the life are, are there for you. Um, and you know, what you do with them is your own choice, but the details are there. And then I do like to connect the personal life to what's happening culturally, socially, internationally you know what? What are the forces that shaped not only that life but every life during that period, including my own? I mean, I'm interested in that period because this is this is what shaped me, and I'm trying to figure it out still. So that's where I get into it. But the, the biographies have allowed that bigger scope, which I'm now trying to smuggle back into my fiction. So, so it does make it harder for me to decide when I come across a subject: do I want to do fiction or nonfiction? And but the other thing is maybe it's because of age too. I'm getting I'm old enough where I don't care so much anymore. I don't care if it's fiction or nonfiction in in a way. I mean I, I don't wanna be loose with facts, you know, I wanna tell the truth when I'm when I claim this is non fiction, I want it to be truthful. But in a sense, whether the narrative is fiction or nonfiction doesn't bother me so much anymore. It's just I wanna tell a good story that, that feels true to people. And that's kind of what I worry about. And beyond that I don't worry the details so much. So I don't you know, they don't know. Um, this story, as I say, was kind of handed to me by by Brammer's daughter, uh, so I, I felt uh, you know a real responsibility to the family mm-hmm. in this case too. Yeah. Who, you about now? Who am I writing about now? <laughs> uh, a very I'm writing about a very obscure another. I, I, after Joan Didion, I got tired of the spotlight of fame. I didn't want to be anywhere near famous people. <laughs> they, they're too scary. So, so I'm, I'm really courting obscurity these days. Um, uh, I'm going even farther than Brammer with the next book. Um, I've got a book coming out in the spring about a Victorian era astronomer, a female astronomer in India. So I'm getting as remote as possible. <laughs> so, um, well, sure, <laughs> if, they'll, if they'll have me. Thank you all for coming out. I appreciate it.